to this episode brought to you by Creative Collective. My name is Louis. And I'm Julia. And today we'll be having a look at and reviewing National Theatre's stay-at-home production of Small Island. So Small Island was originally written by Andrea Levy. It followed a sold-out run at the Olivier Theatre. The Olivier Theatre is the largest uh, theatre of the three theatres at the National Theatre. And it is directed by Rufus Norris, which is the current artistic director of the National Theatre. It involved a company of 40 actors and the stage itself is, I mean, it's huge. It uh, accommodates 1,500 people, but despite its scale, it still has intimacy um, because the stage is brought out forward into the audience and the raked seating allows for contact with, with the stage. I sat in the theatre myself and I know that um, from a viewer's perspective, you can really see what's going on, even though you're far up in mm. the in the second tier. Um, so it's a very effective built theatre. Small Island follows the tale of three intertwining stories from the perspectives of Hortense, Gilbert and Queenie from the Second World War through to 1948 when the Windrush generation arrived in England. So let's get into it and yeah. have a look. The first thing I noticed, which kind of was brought out to me in my theatre background, theatre training, um, was that it's very Brechtian, um, but it's not a typical Brechtian mix. I will explain For to you. For us non-theatre goers. I will explain okay, the meaning of Brechtian theatre. So Brechtian theatre, its aim um, is part of epic theatre. So theatre that serves the audience, not just for escapism and pleasure. Oh, right, so usually okay. something like Matilda, you'd go for the fact that it's so fantastical and you can kind of escape it. So like musical theatre would be a big yeah. example, or is that different completely? Yeah, there's, there are, um, I haven't seen a Brechtian musical, but there are elements of Brecht in some musicals. Right. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but the purpose of Brechtian theatre is usually um, to accentuate political theatre. So this is a political play, okay. Um, but it also tells the story of of humans, and it has human elements in it. Right. Okay. It has natu- naturalism I'm in it. I'm with you. I'm with you. But um, Brechtian theatre allows the audience to feel alienated. It's called the ver. I'm going to butcher this, <laughs> and I learned about this as well. Uh, so this is called this uh, distancing effect. It's called the Verfremdungs effect, which I absolutely butchered because I'm not German, but. This was used by Brecht so that the audience had their analytical thinking switched on and they weren't allowed to kind of escape during their time in the theatre. Right. Which, so when it's... you're talking about political content, is very useful um, because that's something you can't escape from and you're just faced with it in reality right there on the stage. So a lot of parts of that were using um, kind of protest uh, plaques a lot of it was breaking the fourth wall, which we see Hortense do in this play. Yeah. She talks directly to us. She's breaking that wall. She's telling us about her story and that you are watching my story and this is important and this is kind of transcending far beyond these walls and you mm. need to be aware of that. And this isn't just some happy-go-lucky story. You need no, to sit and not. think about... So, you know, that's that's why Brecht... Def- Brechtian techniques are used works. there. It works. It constantly has you yeah because you're constantly reminded um when i was watching it you you're constantly i'm just i kept thinking um 
there are moments where I'm kind of like lost in the beautiful, you know, with the percussion music yeah. or with the transitioning, but it's always like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Um, you're not completely submerged in the story in terms of gaining some kind of um, entertainment from it. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost a vessel for real world events and education in a way, I suppose. Completely. Like there's a lot that you can learn from watching this particular one and so I guess that's what applies to Brechtian 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 sorry Brechtian place yeah. is that correct that's completely correct um what's great about this director um Rufus Norris um well he used a company 40 actors first of all so those 40 actors had a job mm. um you know they were paid <laughs> but he could have not used 40 actors he could have had just the the main four guys but he used 40 actors um there was there was a mix of race um and it was quite an even split mm. um between the genders and between the races mm. um and even though the ensemble numbers so 36 of them didn't really talk mm. they were such a pivotal uh, kind of part of the play from creating the hurricane to creating the going on to the windrush mm ship <laughs> that's it's called the wind the it windrush was the empire wind. wasn't yeah, it yeah. ship but um you know from creating that atmosphere to creating beautiful physical theater with the hurricane the swishing of the chairs up in the air to creating the wall climate of the public um in the street which they could have they could have not spent money you know they could have not given those 36 actors um, their wages mm. they could have just used sound and light but he did you know that wasn't up to him because he's a director but but he but they did that so that I, was really good yeah I, I wanted to ask you about that from like a couple of perspectives so in terms of I suppose being an actor it, it's obviously great to have as many roles as possible so that you can get a role um, but in terms of having your chance to shine that kind of thing like having that many small roles with individual actors for those roles, would it maybe not be more beneficial, say that you got a role in that play, to instead of being one exclusive person who maybe has like two minutes of spotlight and then two hours and 52 minutes of being in, solely in the background, is it maybe not better to ha have used um, actors for more than one role? To So for example, um, Queenie's parents, the butchers, they've got two scenes, maybe five minutes less than that of dialogue. Would it not have been better? Or the RAF, um, Michael's RAF yeah. team, they've got about one line of dialogue each. Yeah. Would it maybe not have been better to just redress someone else and have fewer actors, a closer-knit unit? This is purely from someone who's not from within that, and it's just looking at that like it, yeah. is, it, it seems like a very large. No, cast. that's such a good point. Um, they need, they just needed the bodies to, like, imagine that scene with the hurricanes. Obviously, then mm. it, we question, could he have directed it differently? Um, no, that it was scene, a very good hurricane. That scene the hurricane. Completely, I really enjoyed that, but um, that wouldn't have worked with like five chairs. Yeah, they he would have thought obviously because he had the people at hand. Mm. There's a quote, I don't know who says this, it's either Chekhov or Stanislavski, which are theatre practitioners. Um, the quote is that there's no small parts, only small actors, which I'm sure you've kind of heard before. Yeah. Um, but I know that's not what I'm addressing here. Um, 
so obviously in those small parts they still have time to shine they will still if an agent is in the audience or whatever part of the mm. industry if you're fulfilling that role with the amount of enoughness that it requires then you will be seen and you will be spotted mm. but yeah i guess it's uh then we're looking at context context because you can't have white actors in jamaica oh no, no I the public no i wouldn't what I mean? suggest that no <laughs> no but i mean <laughs> yeah i mean i suppose you've pretty much answered what i was going for but it leads into a, a bigger point for me is which is neither good nor bad but everything about this production is very large large and grand. it's epic it's yeah and it's epic theater like it is because it's got brechtian elements in it and i think um you couldn't you need to fill that stage with people mm. you don't need to but for this i feel like you should and i think it's done very well yeah and if you've got that much stage what did you say it can accommodate uh, the audience. Um, oh, right. Sorry. Fifteen hundred, but the stage is huge. The like, stage it's got is a revolving, um, you know, a revolving stage yeah. in the middle, uh, and uh, you know things that come from so the they ground. Have to fill it disappear. in some way. Like you can't leave three quarters of that empty. So you have to fill it. Yeah, because why? Yeah, why would you fill it with a grand stage design? So mm. I mean, I don't know how common this is, but I really liked the way that houses you had. They used the windows, so they'd have these windows that like drop down from the mm-hmm. ceiling, however. But they use it to demonstrate things like how um, wealthy someone is. Like I, I, I pointed it out when we first High go into ceiling. this person, Bernard. It's uh, Bernard's house. Bernard's house, with yeah. Arthur, yeah. We go into Bernard's house, um, and we get the impression that he's this quite rich guy. But then you see the window of his house, and it's a lot higher than anything else seen so far. Um, and for me, that was a great indicator because, like, you get things like, you know, the bigger, the taller your ceiling, the richer you are, that kind of thing, or like the higher your status. Yeah. So that's really good, like, visual imagery. Such attention to detail. As yeah, well. that was another thing I was going to say. Like, the attention to detail is immaculate. The, the amount of work that must have gone into some of those designs, the Completely. stage designs, from the lights that are hanging down. Yeah, the outfits. That oh yeah. Like, even that was so educational, like, the fashion of Jamaica mm. in that time period, um, how they adjusted when they moved over here and what sort of clothes they... The furniture they took. itself, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, a silly lamp can really <laughs> make yeah. you feel like you're in that uh, time zone. It's and, like, when, they, when, they're, when they're renting a house, uh, when they're renting a room towards the end and it's, it's meant to be this, like, dark, dingy, enclosed space... And even all of the furniture they've got, they've made to make make sure that it looks dirty. Um, the, mm, yes. Like yeah. the kitchen area, it's all it's all off white, but then it's also got loads of dirt streaked on it. And as the well. chairs, how like fl- the paint has flicked off them. Yeah. You've noticed the chairs. Yeah. 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 Um, and then when obviously when Hortense, because Hortense's character, if you watch the play, is quite um, uptight and she's a proper girl and yeah, looks she's, after herself. Uh, you know, well educated, well educated primp and proper um so it's quite funny to watch her kind of be in this weird reality Mm. um and being again this is bringing on to a point of kind of um deeper deeper context Mm. of the play but finding herself you know completely oblivious to the racial discrimination that she may get Mm. um, because she'd always been told you know she'd been told she'd been given away by her mother by saying that she's got this golden skin that's lighter obviously with and talking about colorism here mm. and that she deserves a better life um that her darker mother won't 
get. Mm. Um, so she she has pre-existing kind of ideals that she deserves this life. One of the first things she she says to Gilbert, her husband, is where is the education department? Yeah. Which is really funny. Well, maybe that's something to work towards now is if we talk about the story and how it was told. Because, yeah. again, you're much more within the industry and how it works. Barely. <laughs> well, more than me. Um, so the way that the story is told is it's the first what hour of it is almost three separate stories so we start with Hortense and then we move to Queenie um, an English woman and then we move to Gilbert and we were both kind of sitting there like I wonder how these are gonna interlink because it's obviously obvious that they were going to be linked somehow but it really took its time it did getting it, it was there. tedious I've, you found it tedious I found it tedious I was just like oh just I want to see the link now yeah and um, because I wasn't invested in Queenie's story um, for me personally, I found that she was quite a two-dimensional character. Mm. And I don't know, again, if that's Brechtian, if that's a thing that was meant to be done on purpose, especially because, I mean, both the white characters, Queenie and um, Bernard, and yeah. I'm not complaining about this because I think it has a greater purpose. Mm. I think they were quite two-dimensional. I they found them annoying. I found them, like, um, hard to watch. Um, it was very surfaced acting. It was almost, It was almost like... They were almost stereotypes, like caricatures. Yeah, like Karen and John, yeah. which is which is that's yeah. the thing. It has a greater purpose because that allows, um, you know, Hortense and Gilbert and Michael to and really Miss steal, Jewel steal to really. That's the point of it, I think, yeah. um, to let the light be shone onto them and for Queenie and uh, Bernard to remain in the background because this is Second, their story. Secondary, yeah. They are they are exactly they're the secondary kind of um priority in mm. this situation because the story isn't their story. Mm. It is their story but it's Hortense and Gilbert and the Windrush generation and they represent something greater. Yeah. Um so yeah you you weren't too keen on that storyline, but Hortense and Gilbert's individual stories at the start. And Michael's as well because yeah. obviously that's how Michael was wrapped into Queenie's storyline. But what was your opinion on those two individual stories? Did you find those to be tedious as well? Do you wish that they'd been sped up or...? Because of my annoyance with um, Queenie and Bernard's characters, I wanted to be snapped away to Hortense mm. and to Michael. And even if we notice um, Stella Ryder, I think is her name, the teacher in the beginning beginning of the story, the American, the mm. one that's like, hurricane, woo, I'm so excited. Mm. And Hortense makes fun of her. Even that is a, is a I mean, we, this can be an argument of kind of, um, in two minutes, can a character play a three-dimensional character? It most certainly can. Mm. Therefore, that Stella Ryder character, she wasn't, she was two-dimensional. She wasn't she a was multi-dimensional being. She was well. very over the top. This was a representation of yeah. an ignorant white American yeah. Um, Queenie and Bernard are a representation of, well, not Queenie so much, but still so, um, of ignorant white people. Um, and they serve the purpose of that political element um, to represent kind of Britain mm. at that time. No, absolutely. And I wouldn't have spotted that if you hadn't have but it was, said that. It but was, the more you talk about yeah, it, the more It I, makes I sense, right? That yeah. they wouldn't be as... Like, even if you, if you look at um, Queenie's character... Apologies that I don't know the the actor's the actress's <laughs> name, but um, 
if you look at the way she talks, it's always the same kind of thing. If you talk, if you look at her body language, it's always the same hand pointing. Mm. It's always the same stance. Um, it is epic theatre, so that it's not as naturalistic. Mm. It is heightened. Her voice is really heightened. It's it's piercing. Um, Bernard plays a really awkward, uh, self-reserved, introverted, quiet man. Who's who, the only thing that speaks for him is his racism, yeah, which says that's a lot. Yeah. That's the only thing that's amplified, mm. which is so so easy, it, easily told. Then, mm. um, and it's good that the director directed it that way. But I think the the biggest from this kind of discussion is that we are allowed to focus on Hortense and Gilbert, um, but they're definitely rightfully so given more time to tell the story. So, so you've said that you found you you didn't enjoy Queenie and Bernard's story and arcs as much, but you've also we we agree that we believe it was purposeful the way that they were directed to act and definitely the way that their characters are within the story. But does that does that add or take away from your enjoyment overall? Because you said you found their scenes more tedious. But at the same time, you feel like that was on purpose. So what effect does that have mm. on your takeaway from the story in terms of enjoyment? Because I sat there and I was able to analyse and be like, yeah, no, this is the purpose of it. Mm. I was able to get over the tediousness of it. Right. Um, I still had the effect of like, oh, come on, come on. Mm. But that in itself, the please, like, let's speed this up. Isn't that a positive Um yeah. In a way, it's, a, way it's it. a positive kind of, I want to get to Hortense's story. That is a, an effect that maybe the director consciously made mm. um, for those characters to be tedious so that I am eager mm. to know where the story actually has importance. Yeah, I mean, you'd rather let's get to the other characters than let's leave Not the watch this at all. <laughs> uh, completely, yeah. yeah. So I don't think it's, it's anything wrong and I, I would watch it again. I'd love to see it mm. in the theatre mm. no me too um, one thing that I was going to say just going back one more time to the, the actual storytelling was that I don't know if this applies to lots of Brechtian work or theatre in general but I found the way that the story was given so much time and space to breathe and to organically move forward was quite like Tarantino-esque mm. I don't know if maybe that's something that other people seen it maybe not but the way the no scene felt like it was rushed apart from you felt maybe the end was but in general but that's in the plot as yeah well, not it, in the like acting yeah but in general each scene and each character is given time and space to deliver each line and clarify mm. information and organically find out things like there's no exposition or forced exposition everything felt really organic and as i said given time which is indicated by its runtime yeah. nearly three hours <laughs> but it was a quick it was a relatively quick three hours like we watched it in two parts but yeah. it, it, although we were aware that wow we're only an hour through it wasn't it, it never felt like a drag really apart no. from towards the end when there was more time being given to queenie and bernard yeah bernard um maybe some slight pacing issues with that but apart from that like i think it it more than warranted its its runtime yeah i don't know what I agree. you think about that um no like with the quarantino-esque um aspect of it 
I Tarantino. Ta- what did I say? Quarantino. Quarantino. Oh, because blended the oh blended my both God. of them. We've well, been in lockdown see, for so long. You can see where my brain's at. Um, so I'm just gonna name him Quarantino now. Mm. Um, so with Quarantino, <laughs> with uh, Tarantino's, um, with your Tarantino point, mm. I did feel like I had to be like, obviously watching on a screen is one thing, but I was like, this is a, has a very film esque aspect to it mm. and i don't know if that's because the transitions were so easy to do because of the, that revolving stage and the split stage so it was literally flip the stage with music really smooth transitions that was one thing that definitely added to a film-esque kind of experience of it um that's the only thing i can think about that was i mean i i'm new to tarantino <laughs> films uh, and i am a fan but for me that's i yeah mm. I don't know. And um, Tarantino has a distancing effect as well. Yeah. I would say. Well, he he likes to take historical events and give them a twist. Mm. It, more often in a positive light, which then makes you happy that that's happened, but then also sad that that's not really happened. Got you. But Following. Yeah, we're going off point. <laughs> we'll we'll provide you guys with a Tarantino. If you'd like series. To. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no. Um, Another point I want to make, and I know we've already touched on this, but just going back to the amount of characters, what I should have asked you was, do you think there was too many actual characters? And we can talk about, again, the RAF personnel, blah, blah, blah. I'm happy with that being there just to give some depth and make it seem like a bigger world and sort of expand the universe that Small Island had. Um, But in terms of to the plot a character like Arthur for example so um, Bernard's dad I didn't really see much of a point to him especially when he met his end at the halfway (laughs) at the halfway point like he was a very he deserved better he was a very cute and cuddly character yeah and it was sad when it happened but uh, was that his only uh, there wasn't yeah (laughs) like his why he existed in the play yeah, like he dies and then he's soon forgotten about. Like it doesn't really have a big effect on many of the characters apart from it makes Queenie feel a little bit lonely. Yeah. And that's why apparently she gets with Michael. Although I don't really think Arthur needed to die for that excuse, but whatever. Maybe the house. Yeah, maybe to do with the way that the house was going. But Arthur didn't really contribute anything to the house anyway in terms of like renting it or whatever. And when Bernard comes back... At the end, he has very little of a reaction and it doesn't really play into it's anything very, that happens. very, good point, yeah. All I can think of was that Arthur's meant to be representative of something, so representative of innocent victims of war, um, collateral damage, because it's it, he dies in a theatre because of um, a racial hatred outbreak that occurs because there's some American GIs watching this film that Queenie takes um, Gilbert to go and see and they end up getting into a big kerfuffle. The military police turn up and Arthur gets shot accidentally. And all I could, as I said, all I could think of was that he's collateral damage, a, a symbol of innocent lives. So all of like civilians getting bombed in the Blitz or Dresden or um, anything. I mean, maybe you could also tie it the same as collateral damage of racial discrimination, but I don't really know how that would be appropriate. Mm. But... 
Yeah, that, he had no voice. So he maybe has in no that. voice. Yeah, so yeah, something like that. But he, you can see like the post traumaticness of that. So that makes yeah. sense how he yeah, would be a symbol a, of that. A representative of post traumatic stress disorder, but in the wider scheme of the plot, the plot is a lot less focused on the effects of World War Two or the outcomes of World War Two beyond how it contributed to race relations yeah. and how it contributed to the Windrush generation coming mm. over here. So, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what you think, but I just didn't really see a point of his character and maybe that extends to other characters as well. What, what do you think? I do think you could do the play without him, without his character. But I feel like he just... Yeah, what did he add? He didn't speak. He didn't... There was no verbalness. Mm. And when, uh, even as he was dying, it was queeny. Um, but I think you're so right in saying kind of that he does represent the innocent um, civilians, the those who are silenced, those who are muted, those whose disability spoke louder than they could ever. Mm. Um, and I feel like I like I like him there. I like him <laughs> in it. I think keep him there. He was a he was an older generation man who interacted with with Gilbert. Um, interacted with Michael also when they came to stay um, and you can kind of god you can see the uh, fear on his face and it was kind of like he spoke for that racism as well he represented that racism too um, if you if we're talking about not giving racism that much power mm. um, he kind of represented the older generation and their pure fear because all you need to really show is that fear and yes it's done with slurs and everything in the play despite Arthur being in the play Mm. Um, I think Arthur in the end does represent um, perhaps the covert racism that will always be there Mm. Um, I suppose in a systematically you know racist yeah I suppose purely plot wise he gives a bit of character to Bernard and gives him reason more reason for going off to war and maybe in a way you can get a visual of the person who he would have got his racial ideas yeah, off passed of, passed down of. yeah exactly um but i think it's interesting that um you know arthur is um not an able man and his racism is silenced with his disability hmm. um i don't know what that means but i just think the fear in his face and the the fact that he was kind of lost um, in Lincolnshire mm. kind of is a metaphor. Like, you're right. It, it's like that um, racism speaks for itself. Yeah. Speaking of racism. Obviously, one of the main themes of Small Island is racism and race relations especially in the 1940s during the war and just after and obviously the Windrush generation and so looking at it from a deeper perspective initially the first thing that pops to mind is the racist attitudes that it conveys um, through some of the dialogue so examples of direct quotes um, referring to black people as guests in our country and returning veterans saying things like what was the war for And this is especially prevalent when you see the character Bernard, who we already have established that we didn't really like, um, returns and is incredibly 
insensitive and racist towards Gilbert. And I think what's important for Bernard's character, and I really like the way they handled it, is the fact that he doesn't get an arc for his racism or any mm-hmm. arc in general. And this goes back to the point that you were talking about in terms of being two-dimensional characters. Um, he is racist towards Gilbert, and then you get the really powerful emotional speech from Gilbert about racism and saying mm. things like, you know, the only difference between me and you is that I'm black and you're white and we both fought the same war, etc., etc. And, you know, you get all of this and what could have been super easy for the writers to do is for Bernard to turn around and say, oh my God, you're right. Yeah, we're all the same. And like, all I of a sudden... I see your point and yeah, exactly, it's all, all glamorised. and Yeah, and all of a sudden he's like this converted guy and yeah. whoop-de-doo. But as we all know in real life, that's not really how no. things work. And so it's really good that he doesn't change his mind because it reflects sort of the losing battle that they were and I suppose still are fighting in Completely. terms of racism the fact that they're just no matter what they're not heard so no matter how intellectual or well spoken they are as we were saying they're still not heard um, and I found, I found that it was good from an educational standpoint to see that you know minds still weren't changed when black people spoke up um, but at the same time, it was just refreshing to not see a white character becoming reformed so easily. Yes, yeah. And if he did, I feel like that could have easily stolen the spotlight. Which Completely. Which is what we've already established. It's not The spotlight's not meant to be on them. It's meant to be on Hortense and Gilbert. Exactly. The, the representatives of the Wintrust generation. Yeah. So that was, that was certainly um, a positive and a well a well-illustrated part of what the the play in general is trying to convey about racism so following on from that i spotted obviously a few things um hard to look over them because they're right in your face which is i guess another bit of brecht is that we're because we're removed from it because we're alienated and we're always faced with you know witnessing this racism um and because we're a passive member of the audience in our homes especially we we really get to listen and analyse what's going on. What kind of was really heartbreaking was the fact that Hortense's character, because she's from this privileged financial background and very Christian... Quite sheltered, I suppose. Sheltered background, yes. Um, you know, it's it's kind of alluded to that her skin colour, because she's because of colorism, because she's lighter she's given away for a better life mm. which she um gets to have in jamaica mm. you know she becomes like a school teacher school assistant and she she hopes that will happen in britain that's one of the main reasons she moves because she wants something better for herself mm. and she knows she's capable of that um and you know one of the first things she says to gilbert is um you know minding the the room and how it's not up to her standards she does say where is the department of education mm. i'm going there and i'm filing for for a job and obviously when she's turned away because of the color of her skin um and obviously when she's turned away for the for the color of her skin you kind of realize that she's completely oblivious um you know she goes you know when she's in her room um and queenie comes in and you know, tells her, oh, well, let me go to the shop with you. Hortense is like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm okay. You know, mm. she's a very independent woman, but she's completely oblivious to racism, which is, I don't know how realistic that is. She's obviously representative of the innocent um, individual 
again i don't know how realistic that is but, suppose, but there uh, is some kind of yeah because she was so sheltered it would make sense wouldn't it speaking completely out of my own ass i just I, I feel like it probably is representative of some form of the population during those times because i imagine in like the windrush generation was brought over to help rebuild post-war mm. britain and so i imagine that you know the propaganda that was fed to these people was i'll come over to wonderful england it'll be great you'll get a job yeah you'll, you'll get, get a free job, health service free health service you'll get housing it's your motherland that's what they yeah you know um, yeah white, white saviors all that sort of constantly stuff. occur yeah so so. I, so yeah i feel like unless you had been there before or been in some sort of white majority country you wouldn't necessarily have understood or even realized that the color of your skin yeah. could could do that again that might be a complete misrepresentation but that's just the kind of gist i get from the play and also the basic knowledge of the sort of history that i've yeah. picked up because you think that because obviously these individuals had a great understanding of slavery and their ancestry and everything that went on in the west indies and you know in america and britain um you'd think that they are very aware you know someone like gilbert would be aware of the attitudes but again maybe that's something more i could research into um, i think with gilbert it it becomes incredibly normalized for him like no matter where he is whether he's at the cinema or whether he's at his job um with the post office yeah. he's constantly like getting little remarks here and there and a lot of the time he barely reacts at all or almost laughs it off laughs diffuses it with laughter or yeah makes a, it makes a joke or makes an insult yeah and so i think i think there is a point where he tries to warn portents about like what it's really like but at the same time i don't th feel like he can quite appreciate how bad it is anymore because that's very true yeah. it has become so normalized so it's almost like a you know oh be careful it's like you know you're gonna get stares and people are gonna look at you but you know just keep your head down do your thing when in reality it's it's worse than that and it's again like just quite sad to see it become so normalized for, for people like that like i remember she asks what is a blackie either mm. to i think it was to go to gilbert after she um she makes a what does she make she makes fish and chips or fish and chips Chip, with yeah, dry chips dry chips uncooked <laughs> chips yeah um, but yeah she asked what is a blackie um, and it's just like your heart sinks you're just like oh my god she's completely oblivious or to Queenie when they're talking about the basin and Queenie completely doesn't understand her and there's an accent block but we obviously know what she's talking about mm. um, which following on from that um, it's interesting how in moments, you know, I mentioned that because Queenie and Bernard are two two-dimensional characters, they're almost annoying. They're characterized with specific things, and um, like the same hand movements or the same tone of voice throughout it all, which becomes like this incessant annoyance, mm. almost like the stereotype of like the Karen. Um, but because of this, it's ironic because sometimes I didn't understand Queenie and Bernard, and it was really annoying for me and irritating. And you know you're faced with them saying that they don't understand as like Gilbert in his monologue mm. um, says so eloquently and we understand every single word even though you know through that thick accent we understand every single word that's being said um, 
and Bernard turns around and he says, I, I simply don't understand what you're saying or mm. speak English. Um, and whether that's him ignoring what he's saying because of his viewpoint um, and he'd always ignore it or whether he actually doesn't understand it, we understand it and therefore there's a complete mirror, there's a complete um, block, there's like a glass between the audience and Queenie and Bernard uh, which puts us in a place where we purposefully don't understand Queenie and Bernard's mm. racism. Mm. Um, well, we need to understand it but we we... Yeah, we don't understand them, but we understand Hortense mm. and Gilbert. Um, and I think it in, just in kind a of way flips. Yeah, I think in a way it's like the the writer's way of putting us in their shoes, and I use that term yeah. very lightly because obviously, as two white people, that's yeah. not at all possible to do. No. But it's giving us a sense of like how misunderstood glimpse. they yeah, are. Exactly. Yeah, like a little glimpse of how misunderstood they are. And, I suppose with language, that's an easier way of doing it than perhaps trying to talk about how we would feel knowing that our ancestors have been slaves and all that stuff. Like That's impossible for us to Absolutely. comprehend. But things like language, which is universal, yeah. is something that we can comprehend. So the idea of something being said so clearly and yet people not understanding you purely because they don't like you and they don't want to understand you, that was a really effective tool for again yeah giving us a sense of kind of the the struggles that they had to go through yeah if that makes sense yeah makes sense yeah but yeah we've spoken a lot about Bernard's character and there was just a point going on from him before we move on to Queenie and her types of racism and Bernard obviously goes off to join the war and comes back as a veteran and I mentioned earlier that there's quotes about like uh, returning veterans saying things like this doesn't look like our country anymore why have we welcomed them in that sort of thing and it's, it's just interesting especially seeing things today with um, like the Black Lives Matter movement and seeing lots of counter posts on Facebook and Twitter really strangely like sharing photos of D-Day or some <laughs> some type of war picture saying like oh my my great granddaddy died for you lot to express your opinions, show some respect, blah, blah, blah. And that's all well and good saying that, but, you know, you can say that they died for free speech, but they hardly died for, like, racial equality in the grand scheme of things. Like, not to make sweeping generalisations, but that's what's happened to these people, Gilbert, Hortense, that generation. Um, You know, there's, there's countless examples, for example, from Richard Kingsbury, a retired army lieutenant, um, he says the military was just as segregated as the Deep South, so Jim Crow laws still existed, not just in the United States, but in the US Army during the war. So you only had um, black people fighting alongside black people. You had very few cases of joint race divisions. You didn't have white, white people and black people fighting together. They didn't want blacks in leadership positions. They didn't want blacks supervising other soldiers. They wanted to function just as they did in the United States. And that's, again, like quite revealing of sort of the lack of education that we have about our empire and the war and how sort of jolly it was all made to look. Like, you know, everyone is in together, like everyone in the empire, when in, as a matter of fact, it wasn't really the case. It was much more a case of the you know, white soldiers, whether that be American or British, 
doing all of the heroic stuff and then yeah. black people much more being forgotten yeah. um there's another article here that says it didn't matter that african-american men had been essential to winning the war a famed truck convoy called the red ball express made up of mostly black drivers became invaluable to general george s Patton, delivering vital goods to allied troops on the front lines in france and straight away that's something that i've never heard of Neither. and i'm quite into my war stories and that kind of thing um, and there's more here talking about the 761st Tank Battalion, which was all black, and they fought valiantly in the Battle of the Bulge. Never really heard of that. Mm -mm. Um, you know, none of these heroic efforts by black troops um, changed their second-class status during the war or in its aftermath. And that's, again, portrayed so well in this, the fact that Bernard was in the war and is treated no differently in the scenes where the war is happening or war, when the war ends, um, he's still second class. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter as much. Um, and I just really wanted to sort of bring that up in terms of today's society and what's happening at the moment. Yeah, that was very well said. You never hear about um, what black people contribute to the war. It's very much squashed and like they weren't there at all, where that's completely the opposite um, of the fact. But going on from that, when we're looking at Queenie's um, racism, which there's obviously each character represents a different type of racism and whether that's, you know, the structural racism, explicit, um, Queenie represents this implicit uh, racism. You know, she, she isn't outwardly racist like Bernard is. Yeah, it's calling, like an ignorance thing. It's an ignorance thing for Queenie uh, and it manifests itself in things like, you know, not understanding Hortense and asking do you have shops where you come from it's it's a really you know it's a really easy nonchalant thing for her uh, but she doesn't again she doesn't mean wrong mm. uh that's not me trying to you know defend defend her <laughs> but it's it's just an example of how it manifests from the structure from you know from her education mm. from everything she's been taught to or have hasn't because she hasn't had much of an education you know the all these assumptions that she's made um and again she she's with a black man um she gives birth to this baby who she obviously hides um her pregnancy and everything mm. and decides to give the baby away to gilbert and hortense because she understands that in her hands this baby will never have you know the best life that it can she asks bernard would you ever be proud of him would you ever love him mm. she knows so it's a Again, it's an irresponsible thing, but responsible thing. She's given the baby away mm. um, to kind of protect it from, from herself, from her ignorant family. I think that was a very well done scene because it wasn't like there's a uh, an, a clear black and white, right or wrong answer. Like, Oh, yeah. There were parts of it where I was like, how can you possibly Give justify it giving it away? And then there was parts of it where I was saying, well, yeah, I kind of agree with you. It was very well done in that I sense. I agree, yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously she ends up giving the baby away to Gilbert and Hortense, um, and they say, you know, we know that we will give him the best life that he will get. Yeah. And again, this baby is, I guess, Hortense is the baby's auntie, because Michael and Hortense are cousins. Whether they are real cousins or not, you know, they, they're somehow linked mm. within the family. So I guess, you know, it's like kind of cool, because she is the auntie. Mm. Um but there is an unresolved, you know, it's, um, I like that it's not kind of, 
I said that I don't I don't like how abruptly it ended how the story didn't have a clear end but because the topic of racism is you know is ever going and is so monumental in this day and age um you know and we're fighting against it and in what we see like the biggest civil rights movement ever mm. um without the with the amount of countries involved it makes sense that it doesn't end abruptly um, sorry it makes sense that it ends abruptly mm. um because there is no sufficient ending to this story so again i've come to realize that it, it completely makes sense that I don't feel like there's a satisfactory kind of ending. Mm. Um, no, that's a very, that's a really good point. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, especially for for Gilbert and Hortez, like with Bernard and Queenie, if they were the main characters, then there could have been an ending, ending in, in the yeah. proper sense. Because in terms of that specific story, that was the end for them. That was, you know, we've had this baby, this experience, and now we've given it away, and we're moving on. And that's the end of that. But with Hortense and Gilbert, who are the central characters, their story revolves around racism and trying to navigate that, navigate it, not not escape country. it, because obviously it's inescapable. And yeah, as you said, that's why it isn't. It will it will always feel like an abrupt ending because they they've got this child now, but that child's still going to experience racism. They're still going to experience problems with getting him into school with bringing him up with protecting him from racist people whether that be teachers other parents that mm -hmm. kind of thing and so yeah I, I completely agree like no matter what no matter what point it ended on it would always in that sense feel abrupt yeah which is why it's so cool <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely something that I feel like people should watch and I, there's there's a film about it which I didn't realise and there's also yeah. a book which it was based on, or was the book afterwards? So, yeah, the book came first. Andrea Levy um, wrote this book and then co-wrote the play with Helen Edmondson. Right, okay. Yes. Cool. Well, we'll leave um, a link to the book when we post this yeah, on our yeah. social media. So, and the um, film. Yeah, exactly. So I think that just about wraps up everything that we had to say. Yeah. But if you've got anything to add, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in contact with us in several ways via our Instagram at creative collective pod or our Twitter at create underscore underscore collect or even our email creative collective pod at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you so yes get in touch with us and we'll be sure to reply to every comment mm -hmm. and again we hope you enjoyed and thank you for listening. thank you for listening to this episode brought to you by creative collective we would really appreciate it if our listeners would support the black lives matter movement to help with this we have put links and educational resources on our social media which on instagram is at creative collective pod and on twitter at create underscore underscore collect we urge you to donate to the black lives matter organizations sign petitions and continue reaching for educational resources